Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, you're our uh, roving UN General Assembly correspondent today. Congrats on your promotion. Yeah, no, I'm uh, I'm scoping out uh, Unga. I actually had lunch across the street from uh, Trump Tower, so it's good to be close to our friends there. Oh, nice. Yeah. I feel very embedded in the UN process because I've been reading Samantha Power's excellent book. So uh, I'd yeah. like you to negotiate some sort of resolution for me while you're there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we can talk about that with Samantha. Maybe yeah, that's right. Teaser that's right. on future episodes. So today we're going to talk about the uh, ever-growing risk of war with Iran after this attack on Saudi Arabia's oil infrastructure over the weekend. We're going to talk about the Israeli elections, Congressman Schiff's remarkable letter accusing the Director of National Intelligence of covering up a whistleblower complaint, uh, Trump's favorite dictator, the death of Hamza bin Laden, Prime Minister Modi's visit to the United States, how to build a coalition that is global to fight climate change. Uh, the only good Twitter fight in history, and then some very sad news about my favorite viral event. So a lot of good stuff today, Rhodes. Yeah, full plate. Uh, one quick thing in housekeeping. So uh, you probably heard on Pod Save America and on Love It or Leave It that we are partnering with Stacey Abrams to raise money for her Fair Fight 2020 initiative. Uh, first of all, Stacey Abrams is like the most competent, cool, great person in the Democratic Party. Uh, she is leading an effort to... Uh, go on offense against voter suppression and to make sure that everyone who wants to vote can do so in 2020. So look, we're all like watching these debates, trying to figure out what's going to happen next, worrying about everything. The thing we can do today that will help us win in 2020 is donate to Stacey's initiative. So Crooked Media has committed to raising a million dollars for Fair Fight 2020. We're a little nervous. It's a big goal. We're at about 320 grand so far. So please go to Vote Save America dot com slash fair fight if you want to give if everybody gave 10 bucks we'd be at our goal and uh stacy would be hiring teams in all the key swing states to help us win so that's all the new housekeeping we got um then let's talk about saudi arabia mm -hmm. so over the weekend there was a serious attack on two major saudi oil processing facilities a group called the houthi rebels took credit for this attack but the trump administration quickly pointed the finger at iran Early reports suggest that the attacks used drones or possibly short-range cruise missiles or some combination of the two. The damage was serious enough that global oil prices went up 10% on Monday over concerns about how this might impact global supply. Uh, today, on Tuesday, the New York Times reported that the U.S. intelligence community and the military investigators are looking at satellite imagery, radar, intercepted communications, and, and pieces of the explosive themselves to try to figure out their origin and who actually did this. But determining who launched this attack will be complicated because we know that the Iranians provide weapons to the Houthi rebels, uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean they ordered the attack itself. So during an Oval Office press spray with the Crown Prince of Bahrain on Monday, Trump stopped just short of blaming Iran. Uh, frankly, his comments seemed like kind of dialed down from his tweet over the weekend where he said the U.S. was locked and loaded depending on verification. Uh, and it sounds like he's kind of waiting on his marching orders from the Saudis before deciding what to do, which is pretty pathetic. Um, Republicans and Democrats are just all over the place on what we should do about it. You'll hear from Chris Murphy later in the episode, who is very clear that he does not think we should go to war in Iran. But in the least surprising news ever, Lindsey Graham wants the U.S. to bomb Iranian oil refineries in retaliation because I'm sure that would calm things down. Uh, Mitt Romney said a direct U.S. military response would be a grave mistake. Uh, Democratic Senator Chris Kuntz of Delaware suggested we should respond directly if Iran was responsible for walking that back today on TV. Michael Morrell, the former head of the CIA, who we both know well, suggested the U.S. should respond. So uh, a State Department staffer named Brian Hook said the Saudis view this event as their 9-11. Ben, I'm going to let you take that comparison for a ride and, and see what you think of it. But my question for you is, can you describe to listeners what the deliberations would be like right now in a normal White House as you try to figure out who did this, if the Iranians launched the attack, and what the appropriate responses could be? Well, in terms of figuring out who it is, I mean, you can piece together kind of what the munitions were, whatever imagery you could capture uh, that shows kind of where this came from. And then just try to narrow down your options of of, of who who had this capability and who could have carried it out, um, and and I should say you know oftentimes like theories change in the intelligence community. So uh, in this kind of case where you're piecing it together, um, you know it can evolve. It could say it came from the Iranians. It can say the Iranians must have provided some some munitions to the Houthis. There are any number of theories, and you'd want to establish responsibility. 
I think the the first point though that's so important to make, Tommy, is before we get to like what we would do right now, is we shouldn't be where we are now. We're only yep. here. Uh, because of Trump's decision to pull out of the Iran nuclear agreement and his decision to support completely unchecked the Saudi war in Yemen, which has caused Iran to respond in kind through various provocations, attacks on tankers, uh, the attack on the U.S. drone, and perhaps this attack if it came from Iran or if they somehow put the Houthis up to it, um, as well as all kinds of things that they're doing across the region. Clearly, Trump's policy has been a catastrophic failure. It was supposed to lead to a better deal on the nuclear program. Iran is resuming its nuclear program. It was supposed to pressure Iran into curbing its behavior across the region. Iran is accelerating its behavior across the region. And what I see the Iranians doing, if they are responsible in some way for this, is signaling, here's what you guys have to look forward to if you go to war with us. You know, we can take out all of the Saudi oil infrastructure. We can take out and shut down tanker traffic. Those two things together could have a massive shock on the global economy. Never mm -hmm. mind what they can signal about taking attacks in Afghanistan and Iraq. The Iranians are messaging, this is what you're in for if there's a war. And it's not good. And it's clearly something that would not be popular with the American people and would not end well for anybody. Um, and so... I'd be looking for diplomatic off-ramps if I was the Trump administration. They seem incapable of actually pursuing those. But, you know, unless we want to go tit-for-tat escalation for escalation, you know, we bomb the Iranian oil infrastructure, they hit back. Unless we want to get into that type of war that could have huge repercussions for our economy, for the lives of the Americans who could be caught in the middle of that, uh, then I think you'd be looking for a way back into diplomacy. And that way is something called the Iran nuclear agreement, which was in place <laughs> when Trump took office. Yeah. I mean, in terms of options, like the only thing that ever gets discussed are the military options. And maybe that's because some of it is classified, but the Saudis could go to the United Nations and try to seek some sort of action there. They could, they could try to build a, a global coalition to do a better job protecting shipping lanes. We could try for more sanctions. We could launch a cyber attack. The, the CIA could take all kinds of covert actions. There's a lot of options shy of a tit-for-tat military response that I don't really see getting talked about. Yeah, and you're right. If you wanted to put some diplomatic pressure on the Iranians, you go to the UN. If what the Iranians were doing was messaging, here's the type of thing we could do in a conflict, there are many ways that the U.S. could do that in response through cyber means, and, you know, things that don't take people's lives, uh, that don't lead to a kind of violent uh, escalation. So there is a bigger universe of options, but I keep coming back to the fact that we don't need to be here. We need to yep. pursue diplomacy. In addition to the Iran deal, one of the things that we were encouraging the Saudis to do at the end of the administration that they completely ignored was open up a channel to the Iranians because nothing could be healthier in that region than if the Saudis and the Iranians could somehow de-escalate these conflicts, in, particularly in Yemen, but also uh, in different parts of the region. Nobody is winning this you know, sectarian battle across the region. Uh, and, and so I think you know, what's needed urgently is diplomacy. And that's not something that we've really been able to get from the Trump administration. Yeah. So let, let's talk about the Houthi rebels for a minute. Um, you hear a lot of people saying that the Houthi rebels are just an Iranian proxy force. Uh, and I think we should take a minute to unpack that argument yeah. and talk about who they actually are. Because so it's not true. That's not true. Yeah, it's more complicated. Yeah. So the Houthis are, are Shia tribes in northern Yemen. They they practice uh, Zaidism or, or Zaidi Islam. So I am way out of my depth here, but the the brand of Shia Islam that the Zaidis practice is described as very different than what Shias practice in Iran, say, or Iraq. And again, I'm no expert, but I think that distinction is relevant because a lot of people just assume, hey, this is a sectarian fight where the Shiites in Yemen and Iran are aligned against the Sunni Saudis. But I think, again, it's more complicated than that. The, the Houthis have been pretty brutally repressed by the Yemeni government since at least 2004 and at the behest or, or at least with the support of the Saudi government. That led to multiple wars between these Houthi rebel groups and the Yemeni government. Um, this current iteration of the Houthi rebels, they're not good guys. No one's arguing that. Their yeah. motto and their flag includes the language 
death to America, death to Israel, yes. curse on the Jews, a victory to Islam. Yeah, so not, not, very not subtle. our friends. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, they are, they're skilled fighters. Uh, they've managed to take advantage of the Yemeni government's basically collapse in 2011 during the Arab Spring. They've partnered with fighters loyal to the former president of Yemen to capture a bunch of territory, including Sana'a, the capital of Yemen. So in the process, they've gotten their hands on some very advanced weapons like Scud missiles. Uh, now, we also know that Iran's interest in Yemen seems to have started when the Saudi military got involved in this fight in a bigger way in 2009. And since then, that fighting has just rapidly escalated. And today, the Houthis get arms and training from uh, Lebanese Hezbollah. Uh, we know they've gotten arms and training from Iran, including medium-range ballistic missiles and drones. Uh, and, and by the way, a lot of this background came from a, a great paper by Dr. Michael Knights at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, if people want to geek out more. So, Ben, I think the key takeaways here are that, you know, the Houthis are not our friends. They are a very capable kind of ragtag fighting force that has, you know, shown itself able to kick the shit out of the Saudis in, in many occasions. Um, and, and they're good at this for a few reasons. One, they've been doing it for a long time. They were able to get a lot of advanced Yemeni military hardware and, and co-opt a lot of their soldiers. And they get support from Iran. And I, I was talking to our old colleague uh, and Iran expert, Kelly Magsman, yesterday about what it actually means to be an Iranian proxy force. Because again, you hear that term thrown around a lot. And Kelly said that back in the day, she really thought of these proxy forces in tiers. So, yeah. you know, with with Hezbollah, Iran can really direct yeah. their operations. They're yeah. like an extension of the military, yeah. but they have less control over Hamas and even less control over the Houthis. So yeah. that information, that tiering could have changed since you and I had access to intelligence. But it does seem like this is more an example of shared interests among bad, bad, bad actors than Iran saying, hey, take this weapon, blow up this thing. Uh, I'm sure the Iranians are happy to screw with the Saudis, yeah. but it doesn't necessarily mean they're dictating every move. So again, could be dated information, but that's the sense I've gotten from talking to a whole bunch of experts. Um, but you know, if it was the Houthis that attacked this Saudi oil infrastructure and not Iran directly, that's a damn big distinction that should inform the policy choices that come after from the U.S. Yeah, and here's how I, the Hezbollah the example is the one I was going to give, right? Which Hezbollah is, is a proxy; they're an extension, a creation of Iran, so as uh, to extend their influence into, you know, Lebanon and and have a buffer against Israel. Um, the Houthis are an independent actor, and you know, my experience in government is when the Houthis acted in Yemen, they acted on their own. They were not directed by Iran to advance on Sana'a, the capital of Yemen. The Houthis had been a part of what they saw as a civil war for some time now, and they opportunistically moved in and took a bunch of territory. At that point, uh, as the Saudis are coming in, yes, the Iranians are providing some support, but you know these are people who live in Yemen who've been fighting against the Saudis for a long time and have their own agenda. Their agenda happens to align with uh, Iran's because they're fighting the Saudis. And this is a really important point about the war in Yemen. It has been a catastrophic failure of Saudi foreign policy. If the goal was to dislodge the Houthis and to eradicate Iranian influence, they've actually driven the Iranians and the Houthis closer together. Because of their bombardment of Yemen, that because of their bombardment of the Houthis, the Houthis turned to the Iranians for weapons. And that relationship between the Houthis and the Iranians has just gotten tighter and tighter and tighter in the context of this conflict and has not succeeded in dislodging the Houthis uh, or eradicating Iranian influence. It's had the opposite effect uh, in many ways, right? And so, so uh, it, it speaks to the futility of the war in Yemen and the need to look at this as a problem that has to be solved diplomatically to end this war in Yemen. I think the other thing Americans have to, to realize when they see this is we see what, why on earth are, is somebody hitting the Saudi oil infrastructure out of nowhere? No, there's a war that's been going on there for years. If you're mm -hmm. the Houthis, if you're the Iranians, this is just an extension of a conflict that you're already fighting, right? Um, yep. the, the Saudis have been bombarding Yemen for years. And now the U.S. has uh, stirred this pot further, obviously, by pulling out of the Iran nuclear agreement and stacking up sanctions on the Iranians and making threats to the Iranians and moving military hardware there. So they don't see this, whether it's the Houthis or the Iranians, as, I think, a departure from what is a kind of an existing state of war in that part of the world. Uh, again, I do think if it's the Houthis or the Iranians, it's a message to the Saudis that you are really vulnerable. I mean, imagine in a conflict if the Iranians just decided that they want to take out all the Saudi oil infrastructure, they could mm -hmm. kind of cripple the Saudi regime relatively quickly. That's the kind of dirty secret here that's been exposed. And one reason that the Saudis might actually not want 
to tell Trump to take this strike, you know, because Trump said, oh, I'll act whatever, I'll do whatever Mohammed bin Salman says in a, in a shocking and complete abdication of, of responsibility for U.S. foreign and military policy to a murderous dictator. Well, actually, you know what? Maybe the Saudis don't want this war with, with uh, Iran to come fully into their territory because, man, they're vulnerable. Yeah, uh, here's an example of one I'd love to see a little uh, America first action, but we're not quite getting that. Yeah, look, in, in in the meanwhile, like the result of this conflict is that Yemen is the Arab world's poorest country. There's 27 million people there who have the lowest life expectancy in the region. There is a humanitarian catastrophe ongoing. And and uh, Senator Murphy and I talked about that in more detail in that interview. So check that part out because it's I don't want the potential conflict with Iran to obscure yeah. this broader issue in, in Yemen because we should all be focused on it. Um. Last question for you on Iran, Ben. So there's been a lot of speculation about Trump meeting with the Iranian president, Hassan Rouhani, at the UN General Assembly. Trump's desire for that meeting and willingness to give the Iranians a $15 billion uh, bailout and sanctions relief was reportedly the final straw that drove John Bolton out of the place. Trump initially said he was open to the meeting. Then he called reports uh, that he wanted to meet fake news. So who the hell knows what he thinks? But most recently, the Iranians said, no, it's not going to happen. Um, ben, I can't help but think that we're like one nice letter from Rouhani to Trump away from the risk of war going down uh, exponentially. But what do you think about the utility of a Trump-Rouhani meeting? Is that a good idea? What matters is substance. And there's a deal on the table from the French that is essentially a version of the Iran deal that, the, that Trump could decide to just come back into. Instead, he wants the meeting because he loves the spectacle. And my understanding from talking to different people who are, are you know, close to this situation, right, is that the Iranians said to Trump, we won't meet with you unless you return to providing us with sanctions relief. Like, we're not interested mm -hmm. in your photo op. We're interested in getting the sanctions relief that we were entitled to because we were complying with the Iran nuclear agreement. And 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 that is a logical position, you know, as much as uh, I find fault with the Iranians on, on a host of things. Um, th they don't want to just have this facade. So you've had this bizarre situation where Trump has been chasing this meeting with the Iranians. He's been saying, I'll meet with them with no preconditions. All the people, Mike Pompeo, Steve Munkin, who work for him have been saying, we'll meet with the Iranians with no preconditions. At every juncture, the Iranians said, we don't want to meet with you. And then finally, the Iranians said, no, we really, really, really don't want to meet with you. And then Trump comes out and says, I never said I wanted to meet with the Iranians. It is like mm -hmm. a petulant child is in charge of the diplomacy on the biggest flashpoint potentially in the world today, which is a totally insane way of making American foreign policy. Um, I, I can't resist just returning to the Saudis for one point, Tom, because mm -hmm. you cheated up. To suggest, have a U.S. State Department official, Brian Hook, who, by the way, is the same genius who emailed the <laughs> captain of an Iranian oil tanker and offered to buy it with cash, and who's the same asshole who fired uh, a woman who is a career civil servant uh, who worked in the Obama administration, but also uh, you know, was a career person, not a political appointee of ours, you know, because she was Iranian-American, perhaps, or because she worked on the Iran agreement, uh, and there's an inspector general report coming out on, on that firing soon. This guy says to a bunch of Hill staff that the Saudis say, this is their 9-11. I mean, nobody was killed in this attack equating uh, some oil infrastructure getting blown up with 3,000 people getting killed by 15 Saudis out of the 19 hijackers is so grotesque and offensive. And, and the fact that these guys in the Trump administration just keep doing and saying crazy shit like this and, and, and Democrats aren't doing enough to make this stick to them. Imagine if a, if a, if a Democratic, if someone in the Obama administration had said that it equated an attack on, on Saudi Arabia to 9-11, it's just, it's a, it's mind-boggling and and just shows you the depths of their complete fealty to the Saudis. Yeah, the Saudis already had their 9-11, and uh, unfortunately, 15 out of the 19 guys were on the wrong end. So yeah, uh, I don't yeah. want to hear that bullshit again. Okay, uh, enough about uh, our latest conversation about potential war with Iran, because this is always a real treat. Um, yeah. The Israelis are voting to see who will be the next prime minister as we speak. So a, a quick reminder that uh, there were elections in April and Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu won the most votes of any candidate, but he was unable to form a coalition government. So they had to do a revote or actually he forced them to do a revote rather than share power or, or turn it over to somebody else. 
Uh, Israeli elections, again, are, are very different from the U.S. elections. There aren't head-to-head contests between two parties. You have 30-plus parties running for seats in the Knesset, uh, which is their parliament, and whoever can assemble a coalition that controls 61 of the 120 seats runs the government. So we don't have final results yet, but there was some pretty gross last-minute campaigning that I think we should talk about. So I'll tick through a little of that. Bibi Netanyahu's Facebook account, Chatbot, it's sort of an automated messaging service that you can use to provide information, got shut down for violating hate speech rules after saying, things like Arab politicians want to destroy us all. Mm. Uh, Netanyahu broke Israeli election laws or regulations by releasing polling data and by doing interviews during what is supposed to be a quiet period. Before that, Netanyahu held his final pre-election cabinet meeting in the Palestinian territories. That's the first time that's happened in two yeah. decades. Yeah. And they approved the new settlement. So that's very subtle. Great. Uh, over the weekend, Trump and, and Netanyahu released statements saying they had discussed a new defense pact between the U.S. and Israel. The idea is a, is popular in some parts uh, of the Israeli government, but a lot of people, uh, myself included, kind of thought Trump might go even bigger with this pre-election gift to Netanyahu. So let's posit this defense pact idea for a second. Uh, ben, a lot of policy experts pointed out how this is hardly a new idea, but it's ultimately been one that neither side wanted. The U.S. didn't necessarily want to be forced to come to Israel's defense uh, if they go to war. And then Benny Gantz, the former Israeli defense force head who's now running against Netanyahu, said it could actually tie Israel's hands if something happens. What did you make of this proposal? Is it something you guys considered back in the day in the Obama administration? No. And... Um Actually, I'm gonna. There's one more thing that I saw about the pre-election a Haaretz report that is actually relevant to this discussion, which is that Netanyahu even wanted to potentially launch a war in Gaza shortly before the election, uh, but was vetoed by his uh, security chiefs. Uh, you know, that's one report in Haaretz. Wow, but, uh, it's somewhat believable. Netanyahu clearly is willing to do anything <laughs> and break through any norm and law uh, to to perpetuate his power. The defense because will keep him out of jail. We should remind people that he's worried about getting prosecuted and he wants to win re-election so he can get immunity for himself from that, prosecution. That's Sorry. right. This is potentially about his freedom. But the, the Gaza war ties into the complexity of a defense pact. Right, which is a mutual defense pact usually suggests that you know if one nation is attacked, the other nation will immediately come to its defense. Right, so if a NATO ally is attacked, we will you know presumably go to war on their behalf. Well, defining from the American perspective, defining what that is um, for Israel is very complicated. You know, do we are we compelled to go to war? If Hamas fires a rocket into Israeli territory, or if the Israelis go to war in Gaza, are we compelled to join that war? Um, you know, the types of, of, of military conflicts that the Israelis find themselves in are very complex and, and in some ways, you know, unending, right? If you talk about the wars against Hamas and Hezbollah. And, and so, w- what exactly would trigger the U.S. coming to Israeli's military defense? Um, and putting U.S. troops into those situations. Um, so that, that's, that's a very complicated piece of business. It's not mm-hmm. as clear-cut as saying, you know, we're laying down a marker that we will defend our NATO allies against like a, a Russian invasion as a deterrent here. And I think for the Israelis, you know, their mindset has often constantly been the capacity to defend themselves by themselves, right? I mean, that's always been the kind of Israeli ethos. We we want to have the capacity to defend our state by ourselves, given given their history, you know, that being a part of it. They get mm-hmm. the benefits that come from the U.S. relationship anyway. The, the 10-year MOUs that govern the provision of, of military assistance to Israel assure them of long-term sustained U.S. support for Israel's defense. So it's not like they don't already have enormous assistance from us. This, for me, is, a, is an unserious tweet by Trump just to kind of reinforce to, to the Israeli electorate, you know, that he's got—he'll do whatever Netanyahu wants, and he's got his back, and Netanyahu can say once again, look at my friendship with Donald Trump— but it's it's really not a serious or substantive idea and just shows you that Trump and Netanyahu are both just kind of desperately seeking to drag him across the finish line here. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it landed the way they'd hoped. One other interesting U.S.-Israel relations story I saw. So there was a political report that said the U.S. government believes that uh, the Israelis placed these cell phone surveillance devices near the White House and other key parts of D.C. Trump was asked about this uh, by some reporters, and he said, I don't think the Israelis are spying on us. I really would find that hard to believe. Uh, We should note that the Israelis deny spying on Trump or the U.S. Uh, Ben, 
Do you think that's true? Yeah, I mean, it's eminently believable. I mean, I don't know about this device, but I'm 100%. I think the Israelis are spying on Trump. You know, I always found it absurd that the Israelis would make these comments uh, that they don't they don't spy on us. I mean, my favorite about this, Tommy, is when they like threw you know threw a fit after we uh, didn't veto a resolution on settlements. They said that they knew from intelligence that we had somehow colluded to write this resolution. Right. You know, I mean, they, right. so like they're not even hiding the ball on this stuff. I mean, when you're in government, you are you are you assume that the Russians, the Chinese, and the Israelis may be seeking to intercept your communication. So for Trump to go to go out and say, you know, I don't care, I, or I don't think they're doing this either shows just she's incredibly naive and has no idea how the world actually works, or he doesn't even give a shit if, if a foreign government is collecting intelligence in some of the most sensitive areas of the U.S. government because, you know, his politics uh, are that Saudi Arabia and Israel can do whatever the hell they want. It really was. It's like he's either lying or he is so naive yeah. that it's actually dangerous. It's one of the, I am yeah. sure— that there's like five intelligence services up on his janky ass old smartphone, whatever the hell it is. Uh, there's a great story, I think it was by Newsweek, that talked about sort of the history of spying between the U.S. and Israel. And, and I, there aren't a lot of people in the report denying that the U.S. collects intelligence on other parties as well. But there's this amazing anecdote from the late 90s when um, after the Israelis said they stopped spying on the U.S. because a spy named Jonathan Pollard was arrested in 1987, Al Gore was in Jerusalem, and there was a Secret Service agent who was using the bathroom and took a little longer than normal. And when he came out, he saw, uh, I assume, a Mossad member climbing out of one of the ventilation ducts <laughs> in an effort to place some sort of device yeah, in the room. Yeah, yeah, and he yeah. like kind of coughed and made some noises, and the guy just like quietly climbed back in, and they never spoke of it again. Yeah, yeah. Well, you raised an important point here about Trump. You know, just hopping on the phone with any Yahoo right winger who calls him and sharing his thoughts on the China trade war. I'm sure the Chinese are up on that, right? Um, yep. You know, I, I mean, the, the guy's a walking intelligence risk, you know, uh, having, you know, walking around Mar-a-Lago, having conversations about national security. I mean, God only knows how much foreign adversaries and, you know, countries like Israel that are friendly, but also spy, how much they've penetrated the highest level of the U.S. government and their intelligence collection because Trump and people around him are completely sloppy with information, never mind that there are people like Jared Kushner who shouldn't even have security clearances uh, walking around talking about stuff. Well, that's a perfect lead-in into our next topic. Uh, but before we go on, uh, we should just say, like, back to our Iran conversation, like, the burden of proof should be extra high for the administration yeah. to show definitively that Iran launched its attack because like two weeks ago, just for fun, Trump tweeted a highly classified image of Iran's botched satellite launch just for shits and giggles, I guess. So I think uh, we should expect that level of evidence. Well, and also when you lie uh, thousands of times, this is the consequence. The world doesn't believe yep. you when you go out and say Iran did it. They're like, well, you better prove it because you lie constantly. And and you're saying it's your word and the word of a Saudi crown prince who lies about murdering a Washington Post journalist. You know, no, we, we got to see the evidence here. Also, Trump doesn't help himself because guess what? The U.S. intelligence community found that Iran was complying with the Iran nuclear agreement. And Trump said that they were wrong. <laughs> so he's right, undercut, point. just like he said, they were wrong about the Russian interference. So he undercuts the uh, credibility intelligence community. And then, you know, when it suits him, he says, uh, oh, you know, we've got this intelligence. So, you know, this is the cost of having a president like this. Yeah. Okay. So speaking of abusing intelligence. So on Friday, uh, Congressman Adam Schiff, the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, released this stunning letter where he accused the acting director of national intelligence of withholding a whistleblower's complaint from Congress. Schiff's letter says that the intelligence community inspector general deemed the allegation from someone within the intelligence community to be credible uh, and of an urgent concern. And the DNI is required by law to forward that information to Congress. Schiff says that the DNI consulted with the Department of Justice about this matter, which is really Crazy. weird. Yeah. Because the intelligence community, they want to keep everything in-house and deal with it internally. They do not want law enforcement involved. Um, in the most explicit part of the letter, Schiff says the committee believes that the misconduct involves the president or senior White House or administration officials. Schiff arrived at this conclusion because the, the DNI is basically telling him, look, I'm being told by my bosses, a higher power, 
not to release this information to Congress uh, because it's subject to executive privilege. So there's a very small group of people who are more senior than the, the DNI and able to assert executive privilege, something that usually happens in the White House. So Schiff issued a subpoena. Uh, he says that no DNI has ever refused to turn over a whistleblower complaint. Ben, this is a weird one because you and I have no idea what the underlying issue is, but it sounds like something that could be pretty explosive. Yeah, I'd watch this space. I've never seen anything like this. Um, you know, in, in in 15 to 20 years of working on national security, there is a whistleblower law that compels the intelligence community to share this information uh, with uh, the, the committee. And Adam Schiff is the chairman of that committee. And, and, and by the way, that doesn't mean you go to the Justice Department. So the other thing I take from this is Bill Barr has utterly corrupted the Justice Department. I mean, remember mm -hmm. when he said that he was going to be responsible, he, Bill Barr, for issues around declassification, which is not the role of the Department of Justice, should usually be the role of the DNI. So one thing wrong with this is the involvement of, of the Justice Department all and the signal that that sends. Other problem, we don't have a DNI. Like a lot of places, it's an acting DNI. And remember, it wasn't even the person who was in line to be the acting DNI. The Trump didn't want that person because she was a straight shooter. So he went searching for somebody else who could be weak uh, in that position. That's another problem. And yes, to say that the information implicated by the whistleblower you know, somehow it has to do with a higher up than uh, the DNI or the, you know, the only person who's higher than the DNI is the president of the United States, or perhaps the national security advisor, the White House chief of staff, I guess, uh, could, yeah. could weigh in on matters of executive privilege. That puts this squarely in the White House, right? Um, yep. Yep. So we, you know, we know there's information there. We know there's a whistleblower complaint, which suggests that, that this was wrongdoing. We know that there's an active effort by the Trump administration to suppress this information. Like, this is something we have to get to the bottom of. And I hope that Adam Schiff is, is aggressive and relentless in doing so. Yep. Uh, like you said, watch this space. Um, so uh, in the wake of the G7 meetings last month, there are all these kind of funny, kind of terrifying stories trickling out about Trump's conduct. So BuzzFeed reported that Trump told this like same long rambling story about Kim Jong-un to the G7 leaders that he told them last year, like the identical story. Everyone but Boris Johnson had heard it and they all just sit through some 10 minute thing, which is not all that surprising, but certainly <laughs> weird and annoying. Yeah. This one's even weirder. The Wall Street Journal reported that when Trump was waiting to meet with Egyptian President al-Sisi, Trump reportedly said, where's my favorite dictator? Um, it's worth noting that a 2018 State Department report in Egypt called the government out for unlawful and arbitrary killings, forced disappearances, torture, arbitrary detention, substantial interference with the freedom of speech and assembly, and forced child labor. Uh, I guess this shouldn't surprise us. Uh, Trump has publicly said of CC, he's a very tough man, I will tell you, but he's also a very good man. He's done a fantastic job in Egypt. Not easy. But Ben, like this sends a hell of a message about our commitment to human rights around the world. And you also have to think that Mohammed bin Salman and Kim Jong-un were pretty hurt by yeah. those comments. Yeah, the tears into the beautiful letters that they, uh, that they write with Trump. I mean, First of all, like the, the repeating the story thing, it's like it's concerning when it happens in your family, you know, like somebody's getting mm -hmm. older and they repeat the same story. Like, uh, I can only imagine what Angela Merkel is sitting there thinking as, as Trump is regaling them with the exact same story. Um, but look, the, the broader point about CC, who you rightly point out, has tens of thousands of political prisoners, torture, extrajudicial killing, strangling of civil society, like the worst kind of autocratic repressive dictator. For Trump to be just joking about this, um, at the same time that he's cozied up to Kim Jong-un, Mohammed bin Salman, Vladimir Putin, the kind of rogues gallery of dictators, man, he is squandering whatever credibility the U.S. had as a promoter of democratic values around the world. I'll tell you where they're really happy about this. It's Beijing, because it's mm -hmm. like the U.S. used to at least stand for something. Now the U.S. looks no different from Russia or China. We, we we look no different from any other big country that, uh, you know, will value uh, some crass definition of our own interests over any set of values. And, and the thing is, he doesn't even have to do this. You know, you don't, you don't have to praise dictators. You don't have to make light of massive human rights violations. Like he's going out of his way in, in some bizarre way uh, to essentially 
do away with American support for human rights. Um, yep. And that's going to be a tough thing to get back for us. I mean, and, and now we see what a world looks like in which nobody is even trying to claim the moral high ground. It puts journalists at risk. It puts civil society at risk. It, it, it will lead to emboldened dictators. It will have very real consequences in the lives of people in places like Egypt and around the world. So, you know, it, it's uh, it's easy to laugh it off as Trump being a complete buffoon with an autocratic gene, but, you know, there's also a real cost to it. Yeah. Um, the other thing that caught my eye over the weekend was the White House released a statement announcing the death of Hamza bin Laden, who is Osama bin Laden's son. Some people thought that Hamza might go on to lead al-Qaeda one day. Uh, I guess the White House must have gotten a more definitive confirmation that he was dead because the news had actually leaked out back in July. Uh, but, the, I, you know, he probably just wanted to do a statement for political benefit. And, and Trump called it uh, a symbolic blow. It said Hamza was a key leader. Um, Peter Bergen, who is a terrorism expert we know well, who actually interviewed bin Laden back in 1997, said there's no evidence that Hamza bin Laden played an operational role. Yeah. Uh, Rita Katz, another terrorism expert, told the Washington Post that Hamza had appeal across multiple terrorist groups because he talked about unity and didn't criticize ISIS. So no word on his support among uh, white working class voters in Wisconsin. Yeah. So w- we do know that bin Laden himself wanted Hamza groomed for a leadership role. But Ben, I'm just curious how big a deal you think this was and how much we should worry about al-Qaeda generally versus threats from ISIS or other terrorist groups? Because, by the way, uh, Abu Bagr al-Baghdadi is alive and just released a new tape this week, I believe. Yeah, and that's what I was going to get to. I, I, I don't think this matters much at all. I mean, uh, you know, presumably this guy was a bad guy, and, and I guess you could say someday he could have ascended the ranks because he's a bin Laden. But, I mean, this just feels like Trump wanted to put out a statement like, you know, he killed his own bin Laden, right? You know. Uh, I mean, Obama took out Osama bin Laden, the, the mm-hmm. operational and inspirational leader of Al Qaeda. The the people who matter here are Baghdadi and the the leader of ISIS and Zawahiri, the leader of Al Qaeda. Um, you know, those are the two most prominent terrorists. And I think if you assess the relative strength, uh, you know, ISIS has been the more more prominent threat in part because they're willing to kind of carry out or try to inspire these attacks that are more random, less sophisticated, but in some ways more terrorizing, as we've talked about, you know, running people over the car, shooting people up uh, versus the kind of complex attacks that al-Qaeda seeks to plot. Um, so al-Qaeda, you know, there's still a threat out there, but but I think right now, you know, ISIS is, is the, the more pressing one. Yeah. Uh, switching gears a little bit. So there's a lot of foreign leaders in the United States the next couple of weeks for the UN General Assembly, uh, including uh, Indian Prime Minister Modi. So this upcoming Sunday, President Trump is heading to Houston, Texas to do an event with Modi that is called Howdy Modi, Shared Dreams, Bright Futures. <laughs> I'm not making that up. Yeah. Uh, what was the meeting, a- the pitch meeting where that came, you know, someone came up with that? I don't I mean, know. You were in comments on me like, howdy, Modi. <laughs> howdy, Modi. Get it? Yeah. No. Uh, Retire. Uh, so just a reminder for everybody listening that last month, the Indian government, uh, led by Prime Minister Modi, stripped Kashmir uh, of what little independence it had had for the last 70 years. Thousands and thousands of Indian soldiers were sent into Kashmir, where people have been living in essentially a police state. Uh, additionally, India announced that nearly 2 million people, most of whom are Muslim, will need to prove that they are citizens or risk getting deported or sent to one of 10 mass detention camps that the government is either building or planning to build. So all this is notable because Trump's taking this meeting. The Gates Foundation is giving Modi its Goalkeepers Global Goals Award for providing 500 million people in India with safer sanitation, which admittedly, that's a huge deal. Uh, Sanitation problems do lead to a lot of deaths in India. But I, I also, you know, I'm surprised that the response to the Indian government annexing this territory, stripping rights away from millions of people, building these detention camps has led to almost no recriminations or response from the international community that I've seen. No, and I, I've barely seen anything uh, from Trump, uh, the White House. I mean, the, the State Department put out kind of diplo, diplo-speak statements, but, uh, you know, not, not a word from Trump on this. And yeah, the timing couldn't be worse. Like right after he does this dark move in Kashmir, you're going to validate him with this kind of weird howdy event in Houston, um, which, you know, I guess for Trump, you know, maybe he likes Modi more now. I mean, honestly, like uh, yeah, he, yeah, right. the way to get into Trump's favor is to look like a strong man and look like a nationalist. It seems like 
you know, can any of us doubt that privately Trump is probably not saying to people, wow, that looked like a bold move in Kashmir, you know? I mean, it's kind of chilling to think about, but that's clearly the mentality that Trump has, right? Yep. And, and, you know, who knows what he's thinking? And Modi does these big events sometimes with the diaspora uh, when he comes to the U.S. or Canada. Trump may be also thinking about, like, certain Indian Americans in his reelection who might like Modi. I don't know. They're, the, 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 who knows what Trump's mentality is here? What's clear is what's part, not part of his mentality uh, is any kind of support for human rights. When we were in office, t- to be clear, we also did kind of court Modi. Um, we, we saw Modi as someone who had kind of two sides to him. One is the Hindu nationalist. Um, and, and with troubling authoritarian tendencies. And the other is this man who kind of aspired to be a reformer and, uh, and, and a player in the world stage and do things like uh, provide sanitation to uh, you know, uh, hundreds, hundreds of millions of people. And you know, our effort was to try to encourage him to do things on climate and development that were beneficial to Indians. But President Obama would always lace this with uh, an appeal for the need for diversity or tolerance. When we sought to do something with Modi when he came to the United States for the first time, we took him to the Martin Luther King Memorial, you know, mm-hmm. to, to try to make a point uh, about the need to embrace the tradition of nonviolent change and social justice that King, Martin Luther King and, and Gandhi uh, represented. Trump, uh, I don't think that will be a part of his message uh, no. when he sits down with Modi. It probably won't be at the Howdy event. Um, no, I'm w- glad you won't be in the Howdy event. No, I'm glad you brought up climate change uh, because Modi's visit and the UN General Assembly has got me thinking about it. Uh, obviously, it's climate change is a global problem by definition. And what we do in the U.S. will have a, a big impact, but we will need to bring along countries like China and India if we actually want to solve the problem and prevent warming from a level that will be unsustainable. Um, President Obama was able to convince Prime Minister Modi to join the Paris Climate Accords. I, I was hoping you could help people understand how that happened and what lessons you guys learned that might give us all hope that we actually can find an international solution to this problem. Because sometimes you hear these fatalistic arguments that, well, you know what the U.S. does doesn't really matter because China and India are going to burn a bunch of coal and we're screwed anyway. And I just, I think recent history shows that's not the case and we need to think a little bigger. Yeah. So India was the holdout, right? Um, and, and so it's absolutely the case that you need China and India in the deal, and you need you know countries like Brazil in the deal as well. And you know what Obama's strategy was was first get the Chinese in, and so he worked over the course of a year to get Xi Jinping to agree to ambitious targets on climate change that we announced together, knowing that that would then put pressure on India, so that by the time we got to Paris for the final negotiations, we could say to Modi. Look, everybody else is in on this deal. You know, the Chinese mm-hmm. are in on it, the Europeans, the Brazilians, the whole world. You don't want to be the outlier. You have to be more ambitious in your climate target, right? Little FOMO. And, and 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 frankly, Modi had the politics back home were don't do this. The politics back home were resist, you know, the West and trying to force you into doing this. And I remember Modi sitting in Paris, I was in the meeting with Obama and saying, and, and on this I could sympathize, look, I've got 300 million people without electricity. And you're asking me to skip the phase of development that you got to do, which is burning coal and, 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 and dirty forms of energy in order to get people electricity. Why is it fair that the U.S. and other rich countries were able to do that? And now you're asking us to avoid it. And what Obama said was essentially two things. You know, first on a personal appeal, I remember it was one of the more interesting interjections I saw Obama make. He said, look, I'm African-American. I know what it's like to be in a system that was unfair and unfairly designed. But that doesn't mean I can just choose to completely opt out of the system that I'm a part of. Um, And it was this kind of really interesting way of establishing a personal connection with a foreign leader. Uh, And I do think that that personal relationship that Obama invested some time in with Modi did get him into Paris. And when people say, well, why did you spend time with Modi when you knew some of his troubling background? It was because of this. It was because of how important climate change is and because we wanted him in. But the second part, which relates to your question about optimism, is we also got together with Bill Gates and a bunch of other people to put together a solar power initiative so we could show Modi, look, we understand that you need to bring energy and electricity to 300 million people who don't have it. But here's a better way to do it. 
do it with solar, do it with wind, do it with the technologies of the future. We will get some people together to provide some seed funding. If the markets see you moving in this direction, there'll be new technologies and new investments that could allow you to move faster. And the whole idea of Paris is if governments are moving in a very aggressive way together, to shift the global economy from dirty to clean energy, that the market will follow, the philanthropy will follow, the technology will develop. That's why it's so important that everybody's moving together and that there's not backsliding and there's not hedging, right? And the risk of Trump pulling back on, on American leadership is, well, that's the blank check for Modi to say, well, maybe I will drag my feet. Uh, or yep. for Bolsonaro to say, maybe I will log the Amazon. And, and so the imperative here, uh, we don't have time, we're running out of time, uh, is to restore that spirit we had in Paris where everybody was in on the deal, whether they're in government or whether they're external philanthropists, investors, technologists, whomever. We need everybody at the table to get this done. Well, I hope uh, leaders will summon some of that creativity and optimism as they head to New York uh, for the UN Climate Summit on September 23rd, because we don't have a lot of time, Ben. Um, Okay, let's close with some good news and some sad news. So first, the good news. If you haven't seen it, Liz Cheney and Rand Paul have been engaged in a vicious Twitter war. Cheney called Paul a big loser. She said he would surrender to terrorists. Paul Sin, by the way, was wanting to end the war in Afghanistan. Uh, Rand Paul tweeted that, quote, few people have been as wrong on foreign policy over the last few years as the neocons and Liz Cheney. Uh, He dropped the vicious hashtag warmonger Cheney's pretty good. And he said Liz was just mad because Trump, quote, shredded her dad's foreign policy. Now, we should stipulate that Rand Paul is right here, but he's also fucking insufferable. So I think maybe we just sit back and enjoy this one. I, You know, there's something delicious about watching these people just set each other on fire. It does show you the complete kind of, um, it's a weird uh, social experiment in seeing all of the different contradictions in the Republican Party's foreign policy, like on display. Right. Yeah. It may be a, what we're in for if Trump loses is, is these people just all setting themselves on fire, you know, because you've got all the unreconstructed Iraq war, neocon, like bomb every country, people like Liz Cheney and Lindsey Graham. And then you've got this kind of isolationist libertarian and Rand Paul, and then you've got all these America firsters, you know, uh, neo-fascist types. Um, It's totally incoherent, right? And so if you remove Trump from the equation, you know, a president who is creating the party's foreign policy just by what he does, this is a pretty good window into the kind of complete lack of coherence in that party. And it's also just kind of fun to watch those people type. That's the best. Look, if my name was Cheney, I wouldn't leave the house, let alone a pine on foreign policy. No, and why uh, why she somehow turned to, right? She's on Sunday shows, like another strike against the Sunday, you know, somebody named Cheney, uh, like is the the go-to here. How are these people like able to like put, I watch Condi Rice on every show around 9-11. And yes, while we commemorate 9-11, like no mention of the fact that she was a national security advisor during the biggest catastrophic mistake in the history of American foreign policy, the the, the war in Iraq, right? Um, yep. I mean, with Rand Paul, it's, it's a fight, but it's not like when that guy tackled them in his in his yard. So I mean, no. He, it, at least the guy wants to end wars. Like yeah. God forbid we we, we consider that. Uh, finally, some sad news, uh, Ben. The Storm Area 51 event was canceled. Yeah. You and I talked about this a it's while bullshit. back. Yeah. Someone hit the gravity bong a little Come too on, hard man. and decided that everyone needed the Storm Area 51 on September 20th to find those damn UFOs. Uh, a couple million people RSVP to the event, yeah. but then they canceled it because the organizers were worried it would turn into a literal fire fest since they had you know no infrastructure, food, water, toilets, whatever. So I guess I just have to say... I'm disappointed. Like, yeah. You either want to yeah. know what's out there or you don't. Ben, is this literal cancel culture at its worst? It's a, it's just, a, I was so looking forward to this. And why these people couldn't just buy like 100,000 bottles of water and 100,000 edibles uh, and just send people walking <laughs> very slowly in the direction of Area 51 is a gigantic disappointment to me. It would have actually been like the best expression of the insane moment that we're in, in the United <laughs> States. The blend of like weird conspiracy theory a blockbuster action movie, bizarre reality television. And doesn't anybody want to know about the fucking aliens? I do. I regret every single too. day that when I was in government, I didn't get to the bottom of this. I thought these people were going to do it for me. Uh, and, you know, they just ha- they had too much quit in them. Gen Z, man. I don't know. You know? I mean, like you, you, need, yeah. you need food and water now? Okay. Yeah, come on, man. I Give mean, me a break. Uh, yeah, I mean, just take an edible, take a walk, go see what's there. 
<laughs> okay, with that uh, advice, we're going to go to my interview with Connecticut Senator Chris Murphy. I am thrilled to be joined by Connecticut Senator Chris Murphy. Senator Murphy serves on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and he has been uh, a key leader in the fight to end American involvement in this horrific civil war in Yemen. Senator, thank you so much for joining the show. Hey, great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Um, So there have been uh, a lot of uh, armchair Iran experts and some professionals that I talk to who are very nervous about the risk of war after this attack on Saudi's uh, oil infrastructure and, and maybe even more nervous than they were after the Iranians shot down our drone. You posted this great Twitter thread recently where you said, we shouldn't even consider going to war with Iran over this incident in Saudi Arabia. Do you still feel that way uh, as the evidence seems to grow that the Iranians might have been involved? Uh, and if yes, can you explain why you're, uh, you don't believe we should respond militarily? Well, what's so dangerous is that this administration acts as if we have a uh, national security treaty with Saudi Arabia. Uh, We are not the guarantors of Saudi Arabia's security, nor are we the guarantors of security regionally in the Middle East, and for good reason. Uh, We have come to understand over the years that U.S. military involvement in the region, even sometimes for a good cause, ends up prolonging wars, ends up prolonging the misery. Uh, And so in this case... um, it would be absolutely disastrous for the United States to telegraph to the world that we are the protectors of uh, the Saudi oil industry. A U.S. strike on Iran might make us feel good uh, because we responded in a tough, strong way to uh, this Iranian strike on Saudi Arabia, but it would end up in a regional conflict that we couldn't manage to a conclusion. Um, you know, just wait to see what Donald Trump looks like as a wartime president. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I just you know think that this question is important as to whether Iran was involved or how involved they were. Um, But this idea that it requires a U.S. response when the attack was not on the United States, was on Saudi Arabia, by the way, a deeply imperfect ally of the United States, that precedent threatens to drag us into all sorts of conflicts in the region that would end up getting our friends in uh, just as much trouble as it would us. Yeah. So, okay. If we lived in an ideal world, which we do not, what do you think we should do? What would a a normal administration do uh, in response to an attack like this? Well, it's like impossible, right? Because a normal administration wouldn't have put us in this position in the first place. A a normal Republican administration would have listened to their military advisors who said, hey, I know you don't like the Iran nuclear agreement, but it's really not worth it getting out of it. You're going to set in motion a series of escalatory behaviors that might get us into war. So stick it out. Try to make sure the Iranians comply. This wasn't a normal administration. So we backed out of the agreement, even though nobody was with us. But here we are. So what do you do Um, if a normal administration walked into the White House today, uh, how would they behave? Um, I think what you do is de-escalate, not escalate, right? You would actually telegraph to the Iranians that we want a discussion uh, about how to get out of this, uh, about how uh, perhaps to, you know, at least walk back into parts of the Iranian nuclear agreement. They're sending us a message over and over again. If you cut off our supply to the international oil market, which is what we're doing with sanctions, then we're going to cut off your supply to the international oil market. And the way that we do that is by striking at tankers and uh, Saudi infrastructure. So de-escalation is what we should be doing here. And that begins with talks, with discussions. Uh, That seems implausible uh, today with the Trump administration, but I think that's what a normal administration who walked into the middle of this crisis would do. Yeah. So, okay, we we have a a nearly... 20-year history of, of uh, wars becoming more complicated than we'd hoped and, and them dragging out. We have the very recent example of the war in Iraq, which was one of the most disastrous foreign policy decisions in the history of this country. We have a president of the United States who is a wartime president. Unfortunately, that war is with uh, people who are mean to him on CNN on any given day. So like, why isn't every Democrat saying what you're saying? Why aren't people saying it's fucking crazy to even consider going to war with Iran or supporting this president in any kind of military context? 
So, listen, I think in general, um, the Democratic Party needs to dramatically step up its game when it comes to national security. Um, it's scary stuff to try to opine on nuanced questions of foreign policy when the enemy is hard to define and when we don't have neat peace treaties that wrap up hostilities. And so you've seen over the last you know, really 10 years this retreat by Democrats to domestic policy. Now, not that there aren't plenty of important things to talk about when it comes to repairing our own country, uh, but we really have ceded a lot of this uh, ground on national security policy to Republicans and for a long time to neoconservatives. Uh, and so w- we have to, as a party, uh, be in the game and remind folks uh, about this one clear lesson that we've learned over the last 20 years, which is that when the United States tries to solve political problems in the Middle East with the blunt force of American military power, mm-hmm. we screw things up. We make it worse. We end up in groups like ISIS uh, beheading Americans. Uh, and so I guess I don't have an answer for why Democrats aren't screaming from the rooftops uh, about it. And I frankly think it's an enormous gift to Donald Trump. He's giving us the potential to essentially eliminate what is traditionally this big national security advantage in elections for Republicans. We can eliminate that if we actually go out there uh, and talk about, A, how dangerous his foreign policy is, how he's putting us on the precipice of war, and then what we would do differently. Um, I wish more of my Democratic friends were talking about that. Yeah, me too. Sorry for channeling my inner Beto for a minute, but I'm deeply <laughs> frustrated. Um, do you think Trump should meet with the Iranian president, President Rouhani, at the UN General Assembly? There's been some talk of this maybe happening. Apparently, it's why John Bolton got frog-marched out of the Oval Office, right out of the White House, rather. Uh, the Iranians seem to have shut it down today, but I, I feel like hope springs eternal there. Well, but, you know, why wouldn't the Iranians shut it down when you literally are being told two different things? One side of the administration is saying, hey, we'll meet with no preconditions. And then Trump is saying, no, by that, we meant that we will not meet with no preconditions. If I'm the Iranians, you know, why would I walk into a meeting in which, I, you know, I have no idea what we're talking about? So I, listen, I think this is a tricky one, Tommy, because, uh, you know, I'm never against, you know, the United States sitting down and, and talking um, at the same time. You know, what we saw with the North Koreans is the president view negotiations as simply a photo op. He didn't allow uh, diplomacy to actually work. All he wanted were the cameras to snap. And in the end, you know, we're, we, were, we were probably worse off at the end of that than we were going in. So, uh, you know, even, you know, your boss, President Obama, never did a side-by-side with, uh, with Rouhani um, because he saw that there was downside uh, to uh, that photo op. And he knew that he could actually get some really important stuff done um, through others, uh, mm-hmm. through diplomats and people who worked for him. So I guess I don't want to recommend against talks. I just think there's a much better way to do it than just sticking Donald Trump and Rouhani in a room and hoping that things turn out better rather than worse on the other <laughs> side of it. There's a chance that it could be worse at the end of that meeting if he doesn't let his his experts, his policy people do some work ahead of time. Yeah, that's fair. He doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. He doesn't. So stepping back a little bit, it, it is, look, it's important that we're talking about what happened in Saudi Arabia over the weekend. Uh, our relationship with Iran is fraught and we'll always talk about it, but it is frustrating that this conversation uh, is drowning out the broader humanitarian catastrophe catastrophe that is happening in Yemen right now with U.S. support. Can you explain to our listeners what is happening in Yemen right now and and what you've been trying to do about it? Well, and of course it is, thanks for focusing on this, because it it is relevant to the uh, crisis that we're engaged in right now. Part of what is sort of stirring up the Saudi-Iranian rivalry in the region is the war in Yemen, where uh, the Iranians are supporting the Houthi rebels and the Saudis are regularly bombing them out of existence. So what's going on in Yemen today is a massive civil war creating the world's worst humanitarian catastrophe. Hundreds of thousands of people have died, over 100,000 kids under the age of five have died of starvation and disease, the world's worst ever outbreak of cholera, right? I mean, this is like epic scale, cataclysmic stuff. And it's being caused by a war that the United States is participating in. Um, United States is helping the Saudis drop bombs, often on school buses and churches. The Houthis are doing lots of bad shit too. Uh, but it is, uh, you know, it is both sides that are responsible for it. Unfortunately, the United States is one of the participants. So um, here's what makes it worse. Uh, you to be that the Saudis and the Emiratis would put in a bunch of humanitarian 
humanitarian money uh, to try to make sure that people got fed and immunized. Now they're refusing to even put in the humanitarian dollars. So they're bombing the place and then also not contributing money to the UN to try to fix it in the interim. Um, what we should be spending our time doing right now, instead of ramping things up with Iran, is uh, trying to lead from an American standpoint to wind down the war in Yemen. Because by the way, Al-Qaeda and ISIS are getting stronger and stronger there as the conflict continues. So it's the world's worst humanitarian, humanitarian catastrophe. The U.S. is causing it in part, and it is part of the reason why we're in this situation today with things getting uh, scaled up with Iran. Yeah, so you've been part of the group leading this bipartisan effort to end U.S. support for the civil war in Yemen. Uh, similarly, I, I believe Congressman Ro Khanna has drafted legislation saying that Trump doesn't have the authorization to go to war in Iran, and he's trying to attach that to the uh, the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act. Now, Republicans use the NDAA to hold Obama hostage on all kinds of issues back in the day, like trying to end Gitmo. They basically use that bill to prevent Guantanamo from being closed. Is there any hope that Democrats might be able to use the NDAA to end our support for the war in Yemen or prevent uh, a military response in Iran? So, as you know, we've actually got a couple bills to the president's desk to end our uh, commitment to the war in Yemen. We actually passed these uh, resolutions uh, that required the president to pull us out. He vetoed them, and we didn't have enough to override uh, the vetoes. Uh, And so uh, I absolutely think we should be using other legislative vehicles to try to end the war in Yemen. I think it's that big a national security nightmare for us. But it's kind of beyond me why this, you know, this legislation to say we shouldn't go to war in Iran without a congressional vote is controversial. Right. I mean, I don't understand why Republicans all of a sudden decided uh, that the president could march into war with a foreign power without a vote from the legislative branch. Um, they didn't feel that that was the case when Obama was president. They wanted all sorts of oversight over when the when President Obama went to war. So I think this is a very strange precedent for Republicans to set, to say, hey, we're not going to vote for something that just simply says, before you start bombing Iran, like, come and talk to us first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for all their uh, attacks on Obama about the red line, many of which are, are well-deserved, uh, they didn't even want to vote on an authorization to go to war in Syria. Now, they seem to be accepting this argument that you hear from Pompeo and others sometimes that the the authorization for the use of military force uh, passed back in 2001 to deal with the 9-11 attacks somehow authorized war in Iran. That seems insane to me. And, and if that's the case, then you are truly involved in a never-ending war. Because remember, the 2001 AUMF is about uh, going after those that harbored al-Qaeda. Um, now, it has been sort of metamorphosized to mean anybody that affiliates itself with al-Qaeda or anybody that al-Qaeda turns into. Um, well, if that's ISIS, if that's Boko Haram, if that's anybody that has ever temporarily housed members of al-Qaeda, uh, then you essentially have blanket permission from Congress for the executive branch to go to war in an unlimited fashion in almost every dangerous country that exists. And, you know, how on earth is that conservative, right? to grant that kind of discretion to the uh, executive branch for all these rulings that howled over the ways that President Obama exercised executive discretion. This would be the biggest exercise of executive discretion in the history of the world if the 2001 AOMF was interpreted in a way to allow the president to go to, to bomb a sovereign country, in this case, Iran. Yeah. Uh, last question for you. So I think we're all quite happy that Trump's neocon walrus national security advisor, John Bolton, was <laughs> just frog marched out of the White House. But does it worry you that we are having this conversation about possibly going to war with Iran with no national security advisor, an acting director of national intelligence, an acting Homeland Security secretary, a secretary of defense that no one has ever heard of? I mean, is Mike Pompeo going to drop these bombs himself? How is this working? Remember, like Mike Pompeo is not a seasoned diplomat. I mean, we all sort of rely on Mike Pompeo to be the wise man in the room. Um, I I like Mike as a person. He's smart, but he has no experience um, in international diplomacy, as neither does the new Secretary of Defense, as you mentioned. So I think the short answer is it's just good that John Bolton's not in the room right now, period, Mm -hmm. stop. Um, You know, when you have a attack of this scale that sort of itches people for war with Iran, you just don't want 
John Bolton anywhere near that conversation. Um, but how how sad must he be? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, so, so we're better off <laughs> with no national security yeah. advisor than that guy. But I will say, and I've tried to make this point um, on social media, and it has not worked. Um, I've tried to, to suggest that this constant turnover um, of bad people in the administration is a problem in and of itself, because there's the controversial stuff that, that the national security advisor works on, like Iran. But then there's, as you know, just a lot of basic blocking and tackling um, that there's not a lot of disagreement between Republicans and Democrats on. And when you cycle through people this quickly, even if they're bad people on stuff that really matters, um, it just makes it impossible for the rest of the world to work with us on stuff that's not controversial, like, mm-hmm. for instance, trying to solve you know problems in the Balkans between Kosovo and Serbia. And so you know we are becoming totally irrelevant in the world today, not just because people think our president is bananas, but also because they have no idea who to talk to on a daily basis. And the people they do tend to talk to don't know what the hell they're talking about. Um, That's a problem as well. Yeah. uh, I lied about the last question. Last, last question. So you were just in Kosovo, Ukraine, Germany, Germany, Serbia, I believe. You weren't allowed into Russia because, what, you're too mean to Putin? Why wouldn't they let you in? And how was the rest of the trip? Yeah, I mean, I... I, uh, I think the Russians just, you know, sort of like messing with delegations that want to come to the country. So, you know, they did this in the past where they'd, you know, give visas for one person but not others and is a way to try to divide Congress from itself. That's what they did here. They gave a visa to Mike Lee and they wouldn't give one to me and Senator Johnson. Uh, I don't think too much of it. I'm a critic of these guys, but, you know, I, I, if you're not letting me in as somebody who wanted to actually, you know, have a dialogue with the Russians, um, then I'm not sure, you know, uh, who you're letting in. Um, the rest of the trip was interesting. Probably most interesting was the stop in Ukraine. Um, I was there, you know, at the moment when Trump announced he was not going to move forward on aid for the country. And, you know, the Ukrainians are just super confused right now because they got Rudy Giuliani showing up telling them that they need to start investigating the Biden family. And then they have these official notices from the Trump administration telling them out of nowhere that your money is being suspended. And, you know, well, you know, I don't think anybody's making the explicit connection between the two. Um, How can you not, if you are the new president of Ukraine, think to yourself, huh, maybe if I do what the president wants me to do with the Bidens, I'll get my money. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's just... That's a that that's a massive scandal in and of itself. Um, yeah. That of course has gotten very little attention. And to one of our most important allies, the Ukrainians, it's you know throwing them into a little bit of uh, crisis mode. Yeah. Uh, well, Senator, sincerely, thank you for like just speaking honestly about what a crazy idea a war with Iran would be, <laughs> and for all your work to try to uh, end what's happening in Yemen because it is just it's truly horrific. Um, two last things, if. Folks should check out your Twitter feed because you actually do really helpful things like explain who are the Houthis, something we did on this show earlier in the recording, but it's like just basic context. Then also, if people want to help fight for some of these pieces of legislation and they want members of Congress to you know, attach a bill to end the war in Yemen or stop a war with Iran to the NDAA, what can they do? How can they help you out? So I, I think, you know, this is just not a topic that is um, incoming into Senate offices uh, like domestic priorities are. And so, you know, making sure that you're paying attention to my Twitter feed and other progressive foreign policy thinkers. You mentioned Ro Khanna. Um, Bernie is obviously very forward thinking on uh, much of, uh, of this. Uh, uh, others in the House as well. Uh, follow a few of us on social media. That will give you quick updates when we're trying to attach an amendment to uh, a piece of legislation and then throw in a quick email to your member of Congress. There are also great you know, advocacy organizations that are working on these issues. Move On has stepped up its efforts uh, on foreign policy, Win Without War, the Friends Committee. Um, there are a lot of uh, organizations that are pushing Congress on a progressive foreign policy agenda on this idea of standing up to Trump more regularly on his batshit crazy ideas like going to war with Iran. Uh, You can join those organizations as well. Amen. Uh, Senator, thank you again. Uh, Really appreciate your time. Thanks, Tommy. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Pod Save the World. Ben, you got any good UN meetings on the docket here? Are you going to like a Friends of Yemen event or like some of the things you used to do? (laughs) No, I am looking forward to, though. Uh, I'm going to be in Singapore, but then back in New York for Moranga Fun and seeing... uh, 
Among other people, the woman who helped negotiate the Paris Climate Accord, uh, Christiana Figueres. Well, so cool. hopefully she'll have some optimism for me. And I do love Chris Murphy. If you're looking for a Democrat in Congress to listen to on these foreign policy issues, uh, follow that guy on Twitter, follow what he has to say, follow what he writes, because uh, I think he's helping to define where we need to go as a party. You know, it's funny. I made the identical plug uh, that you did <laughs> and we didn't even coordinate it. He, he really yeah, is yeah. great. All right, buddy. Travel safe and uh, see you soon. See you. Pod Save the World is a product of Crooked Media. The senior producer is Michael Martinez. Our assistant producer is Jordan Waller. It's mixed and edited by Chris Basil. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Nara Malconian, and Milo Kim, who film and share these interviews on video each week. 